Okay, well please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22 and Romans chapter 14 if you can balance both of those. We're going to start Joshua 22 and then move on to Romans chapter 14 uh, here in just a moment. So about two years ago, uh, we took a family vacation to San Antonio. We were living in Mount Pleasant, Texas at the time. So Mount Pleasant to San Antonio is about a six-hour drive. I had two little kids with me, and that was going to be the longest trip that we had taken yet with these two little kids. So I decided we were going to get a hotel for the night and spend the night about halfway, which is in Waco. So I called around, and I tried to get the best deal possible because I'm always trying to save money wherever I can. So I got a deal at the Courtyard Waco, pretty good deal. But I, one of the requests that I had was that we get one of those roll-away roll beds. Is that what they're called? I, I called them roll-out beds. Jessica calls them roll-away beds. So I'll go with her phrase, roll-away bed. But I wanted to make sure that if we were going to reserve a roll-away bed, it was going to be free. I didn't want to pay for it. And they confirmed two different times on the phone that it would be free. So when we arrived that day, I reminded them that we reserved a roll-away bed and I reminded them that they told me it was free, and they assured me it's free. So we had our stay, everything went great, had a great vacation, went home, and the next week I was checking our bank statement. And I looked, and from the courtyard Marriott, we had two, uh, the courtyard Waco, we had two charges. One was for what we paid for the hotel, and then an additional charge for $10.77. So in my mind, I'm thinking, they charged me for that bed, and they promised me they wouldn't. And these big corporations are always trying to cheat you out of your money, and they're not going to get away with it. So I was bound and determined to call them, set the record straight, and get a refund for $10.77. I know that's not much money, but it was the principle behind it. All right, so I called. I waited on the phone. Uh, I made sure that I got to talk to somebody at the physical location there in Waco, and I was going through what happened and how they assured me on the phone, they assured me in person we wouldn't be charged for this rollaway bed, and yet we were charged $10.77. And she tried to explain to me, sir, we don't charge for those beds. And I don't know where that charge came from, but let's try to figure it out. And I was trying to be nice, and she was being patient with me, and she was going through all these different options of why we could have been possibly charged. And then she said, did you happen to eat the breakfast? And I paused, I opened up my wallet, I found a folded up receipt, and I unfolded it, and it was for breakfast for $10.77. <laughs> and so I just said, you know what, you could be right, let's just let bygones be bygones, and then we, <laughs> I hung up the phone. Never once did it cross my mind that I could be wrong. I was so shocked by that because I went into it thinking I was a victim, and they were out to get me. They were trying to cheat me out of my money. Never once did I think I could be wrong. And we do this as human beings, don't we? We think that we have pure motives, but sometimes we question the motives of other people. So the first section we're going to look at in our Old Testaments is Joshua chapter 22. And in Joshua 22, that's kind of a similar scenario, maybe a little bit more serious than a $10 charge. But the Israelites have gone into the promised land. They've conquered. Right? It's time to settle in and to enjoy finally living in the promised land. And so Joshua, their leader, the beginning of Joshua 22 is dividing up everyone. Some of the tribes are going to go to the east side of the Jordan River. Some to the west side, as previously determined. 
And so when the eastern tribe was going to their part where they were going to settle with all their money and all their riches and all their everything that they had, they decided in verse 10 to build an altar. The NIV says they built an imposing altar by the Jordan. Uh, the version that I read from says that they built an altar of great size. So we're not told exactly right away why they built the altar. We just know they built an altar, and it was huge. But then in verse 11, when the western tribe hears about this, they get everybody together. In verse 12, they gather the whole assembly, and they decided to go to war against them. These are their people. They are supposed to share this inheritance together, and rumor has it, The eastern tribe built an altar, and they don't know exactly why they built the altar. They jump to conclusions and assume they built the altar because they're going to worship idols, and they've already given in to worshiping idols, but they don't know that for sure. But still, they get everybody all riled up, and they decide to go to war over a suspicion. They're suspecting that maybe there's some false motives, and so they're assigning false motives to the eastern tribe, and they decide to go to war. Now, thankfully, before they did that, the western tribe sent some of their priests and tribal leaders over to the eastern tribe to accuse them, right? They confronted them, and they said, we know you built this altar to worship false gods, and while doing that, you're going to bring a bad omen not only on yourself, but on us as well. So they bring their strong accusation, and then in verse 24 through 27, finally, the eastern tribe has a chance to defend themselves, and the first thing they say is, no, like, no, you got it all wrong. We didn't build this altar to worship other gods. If we did, then go ahead and condemn us. We built this altar as a monument of our unity. So that our children and our grandchildren will know that our, our tribes, the eastern side, the western side, that we're unified together. The altar was for you, is basically what they tell them. So they were ready to go to war. They were ready to kill them all because of this altar. And they were ready to go to war over a suspicion. So once they talked it all out, everybody kind of calmed down. The western tribe went back home and they explained the real reason behind the altar and no more war talk, right? I, I find Joshua chapter 22 kind of a funny chapter. After all they've been through, they came so close to a lot of unnecessary bloodshed, all over a suspicion. And how often do we do that as human beings? We assign motives to other people, not really knowing exactly what their motive was. We just assume we have pure motives and that maybe other people don't have so pure motives. So this month, we've been talking about the mind. Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and what? Your mind and all your strength. So Jesus believed that the first and the most important command was to love God with all of who we are, including our minds. And so this month, we've been looking at The mind, how do we take our thoughts captive, as Paul writes, and make them obedient to Christ? How can our minds become the place where Christ dwells? So far, we've used the book of Romans as a guide, and we've looked at Paul's own journey, Romans 6. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. So that Sunday, two weeks ago, we looked at addictions of all kinds and mental enslavement. Last week, we looked at 
Paul's own mental battles and being stuck. And it builds up to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, Be transformed, this metamorphosis that can take place by the renewing of your mind. It's an ongoing transformation. So I want to continue to talk this morning about our minds and how we can love God with all of our thoughts, with everything that comes in and goes out of our minds. But what I really am going to focus on this morning is how do we do that socially? our social aspect, the way that we view other people, the conversations that we have in our head with people that haven't actually happened, but we just assume, we anticipate what people are going to say. Uh, Often people will come visit churches, and they'll say something like, I'm not going back to that church because everybody was judging me. How did you know everybody was judging you? Did they hold up a sign and said, we're judging you right now? I have a friend who has worked with teenagers, now they're college students, and he's worked with them for a long time, and one girl went and visited a church where she was attending college, and she told her old youth minister, I'm not going to go back to that church. Why? She said, well, everybody's judging me. How are they judging you? Because I have a past. How do they know your past? Well, they don't know my past. Well, how are they judging you then? You're judging them thinking they're judging you. It's in your head. And how often do we do that? We think that people are talking about us, Or we think people are judging us and we have these conversations in our mind. We assign motives to other people and sometimes those are false motives. When I first started preaching over 10 years ago, one of my first sermons, I was all prepared. I got up. I was ready to go. It was on a Sunday night, so the crowd was a little bit more thin. You could make a little bit better eye contact. And I looked out and there was a former game warden, retired game warden, looking me, staring a hole through me. And I thought immediately, I have said something that he has disagreed with. And then as I went on throughout the sermon, I would look over at him and then try to look away quickly. As I was like, man, he wants to kill me. Like, this guy is really mad at me. And after the sermon was over, I was ready. I was bracing myself. He came right over to me, and he shook my hand. He said, hey, good lesson. And I said, are you sure? Because your face did not look like you thought it was a good lesson. But we do that all the time. We look at people and the way that they look, and we just think that we know what they're thinking, right? But only we know and God knows what we're thinking, right? So socially, how do we love people with all of our minds? Elvis had this song called Suspicious Minds. And I'm not going to try to sing it this morning, but there is a line in the song that we can't go on together with suspicious minds. Now, obviously, Elvis had some sort of troubled romance. I don't know what was going on in his life. But I like to think that maybe Elvis had Joshua 22 and Romans 14 in mind when he wrote this song. Because I think, biblically, there's some of the same problems. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. Look at Romans chapter 14, our next passage. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Uh, Paul is... It's still this long, complex letter, his longest letter that he's written. Um, he's dealing now with their social mindsets and how they're viewing each other. And I'll remind you, I've said this before, but the overarching reason why Paul is writing to this church in Rome is he's trying to unify this church. There are Christians who have a Jewish background and Christians who have a Gentile background, very different from each other. And so Paul's trying to unify them as one. At one point, when Roman Emperor Claudius was ruling, he kicked all the Jews out of the city. When Nero became the Roman Emperor a few years later, he let all the Jews back in. So they're having problems 
coming together. And Paul has written this whole letter, and now he's dealing with some of their specific problems. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Welcome those who are weak in faith. Now, if you just pause in that line, welcome those who are weak in their faith. If I'm sitting in the audience and somebody is reading this to me, my thought is, who is that? Who's he considering, who is the weak person, right? Who is, who is strong in faith and who is weak in faith? Is he talking about me? So he says, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. So the first subject is about their diet. Some eat meat, some eat only vegetables. This was a common problem for the early church. There were pagan temples all over the place. Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and following. In these pagan temples, they would offer sacrificial animals to these idols and pagan gods, and then they would take the meat from the animal and sell it in the marketplace. So for a Jewish person with a Jewish background, growing up, following the law of Moses, the dietary restrictions, trying to keep kosher laws, uh, they would not eat pork, but they also, it violated their conscience to eat meat that had been sacrificed to some pagan god. So living in the big city in Rome, probably without a Jewish butcher nearby, they didn't know if the meat had been properly slaughtered, so they just decided probably just to become vegetarians. Not for the same reasons why people become vegetarians today. You know, killing animals didn't bother them. They lived very close to their food source for animals or crops. But what bothered them was how the meat had been prepared. It violated their conscience, so most of those with a Jewish background, although they had been set free in Christ, were still cautious with what they would eat. But those with a Gentile background, we're assuming this is what Paul is referring to because the weak eat only vegetables, but those with a Gentile background probably had no problem eating meat. They didn't care where it came from. It didn't bother them. They had pagan backgrounds. They knew what all that was about. They knew it meant nothing. So some were eating meat, some would eat only vegetables, and that was a very contentious subject. So when you come together for church and you share table fellowship, what you eat was very important. And Paul says, accept each other. And then you move down to verse, skip around a little bit in chapter 14, verse 5. He says, some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. So some in this church in Rome still believe that some days were sacred. But some believed that all days are alike. For Paul, if you read all of Paul's letters, it's a matter of indifference. The days, holy days, Jewish festivals, dietary laws, all of that, he believed, had been set free in Christ. But Paul also realized that not everybody had arrived at the same conclusions. Not everybody was at the same place in their faith journey. So for those who have a Jewish background who want to keep the the festival days and the feasts, let them do it. 
But for the Gentiles who believed that that, those weren't that important and we didn't have to do it all days are equally as important, you know, don't rub it in their faces, don't use it as a way to start fights. So they were having all sorts of division. So going along with this theme, there were some suspicious minds in Rome. They differed. They had different opinions on things that were very important to them, and there were suspicious minds, and that's been happening ever since. Centuries have gone by, and churches always struggle. It may not be about meat or vegetables or holy days, but there's always going to be some issues that could potentially divide us. In the 19th century, there were two preachers, famous preachers, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. Uh, They operated around London in that area, and they uh, were pretty well known. They were friends early on in their preaching career. They would often swap pulpits, but as time went on, they had some pretty strong disagreements with each other. And then publicly, Charles Spurgeon, or so the story goes, was outspoken against Joseph Parker because he attended theater. So he accused Joseph Parker of being unspiritual because he would go to the theater. But the people that were reporting the story said that while he was accusing Joseph Parker, he was smoking a cigar. So some people accused him of being unspiritual for smoking a cigar. So who's right and who's wrong, right? And this is, this is a news report that's all over the place. You know, people are getting this and reading it. And so when they look at the church and they're looking at the preachers, like these guys are just fighting with each other over who's right and who's wrong. There's been problems that could potentially divide us for centuries. And they're not always the same problems. When the radio first became a thing, which was before my time, but when families would sit around and listen to the radio, there were some Christians who claimed that you were unspiritual or sinful for listening to the radio because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So they believed you can't listen to the radio. Now I know these are kind of light-hearted subjects, but there's always going to be something that we may not agree on that could potentially divide us, and that was the problem with the church in Rome. Their backgrounds were very different from each other. And it became a sore subject in this church, and so Paul is dealing with it. And if you scroll down to verse 10, Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So he's asking, why are you judging each other? Why are you passing? God will sit on the judgment seat. He will make the final judgment call. Why are you judging each other over these, what he would call, disputable matters? Instead of judging each other, why don't you welcome each other? That's how the NRSV translates. Welcome each other. NIV is accept each other. So he uses words like peace and welcome and love. And I think what Paul is calling them to do is despite your backgrounds and your huge differences, walk with each other on the journey. Be patient with each other. Accept each other. Love each other. Look at verse 13 and following. It's like Paul is changing the tide now and he's going to put the focus on the stronger brother. In verse 13 he says, Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another. But resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. 
So in Christ, Paul has come to the conclusion, and he is one who grew up with a Jewish background, he's come to the conclusion that what Jesus taught was that he has made all foods clean. Things have changed. The law has been fulfilled, but not everybody has come to that same conclusion. Look at verse 15. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of the one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. So he uses words like stumbling block or hindrance. Don't become a stumbling block or a hindrance or don't injure your fellow brother or sister because of what you are okay with in your own life. Don't become a stumbling block for someone else. Don't use your freedom. You know, Paul believed we had been set free in Christ, free from the law, free from sin. And he, over and over he approaches the subject. Don't allow your freedom in Christ as an excuse to indulge in a sinful nature. And here he's saying, don't let your freedom cause someone else to stumble. We had a neighbor growing up that had a nice little walkway from the sidewalk to the front porch. And every year when the leaves would fall, he wanted to keep his yard looking clean, especially his walkway. So around November, he would have a Saturday where he would do some major yard work. And he would bag up all the leaves and clear up that walkway. But if you watched him closely, he would bag up some of the leaves, but most of the leaves he would blow over into our yard and our driveway. His yard looked good, his walkway looked good, but our, our driveway looked a lot worse after that. So it went from one path to another. And I feel like what Paul is alluding to here is when your own path has been cleared and you see things clearly and you've arrived at a certain place in your spiritual journey, don't make the path of your neighbor a lot more difficult to walk down. Love in Christ considers how it affects those around you. So he's saying don't become a stumbling block. Those things aren't that important. Remember, these are people for whom Christ died. And then in verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, he uses this phrase, the kingdom of God. If you read through the Gospels, that was the central message of Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. But when you read through Paul's letters, rarely does he use this expression, the kingdom of God. But here he does. And he says the kingdom of God is not about food or drink. It's not about these physical things. But what is the kingdom of God about? Peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. The one who serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. So he's just hitting on the same subject here. Don't make others fall because of what you approve and what you're okay with. And then he uses this word conviction in verse 22. And if you could summarize a lot of what Paul's writing here, I feel like he's saying, hold your convictions in love. Whatever it is that you have come to a conclusion on, hold it with humility and love. And don't 
throw it in somebody's face and use it as a reason to divide and to fight. Hold your convictions in love. A few years ago, there was a, a preacher in the Church of Christ tribe who had an opportunity to preach in front of a very large audience at a conference. And I won't tell you his name, and I won't tell you what he talked about, but he was very open about some of his beliefs. In his faith journey, he was open and honest about some conclusions that he had arrived on. And apparently, a lot of people disagreed with him. So following that, the next week or so, he was completely blasted on social media. People got on there and said terrible things about him, about his family, about his faith, about his preaching. I mean, they said some horrible, ugly things, and he was quiet for a while. You know he was reading it. And then finally he responded, and I'll never forget his response. He said, no matter what anyone says, you will never make me stop loving you. No matter how you treat him, no matter what you say about him, his goal was not to prove himself right. His goal was to love people all the way through it. They had arrived at different conclusions, and they were ugly about it, but his goal was peace and joy and love. And so hold your convictions and love. And Paul begins to wrap this section up, and really the whole letter in verse 23. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat, because they do not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Verse 23 is a very interesting verse. Would make for an interesting discussion someday, but that's not really the main focus for this lesson. Chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. That's what love does. It considers those around you. And not just build up yourself, but to build up your neighbors. And then you skip down to verse 6. And I think verse 6 is a great summary for the entire letter of Romans. So together you may love with one voice. Together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his goal. He wants them to have one voice. To praise God as a unified front for the sake of the mission with one voice. So Paul has talked about renewing your minds, and that's what we're talking about in this sermon series. And as you renew your mind, that becomes evident to those around you by the way that you behave socially, with the way that you love people. And it's all for the sake of the mission of Christ. They were in Rome. Millions of people lived in Rome, right? They, they were in the heart of it right there. That's where the Roman emperor lived. That's where people from all walks of life lived. And what an opportunity they had to take that great commission that Jesus had sent them out on to go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. They could do that right there in Rome, but they were stopped from doing that because they spent a lot of time fighting with each other over these matters. So Paul is calling them to one voice, to be unified, have a unified front, because this is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, Jesus prayed that we may be one, that the world around us will see unity. And in seeing that, that's part of the mission that he has called us to. So renewed minds leads to renewed love towards others. I want to say a prayer and then I have three more quick thoughts. Father, we pray that you'll renew our minds. Lord, we know that you have offered us a chance to change our lives and become new people, not just 
one big event in our life, but throughout our lives. And I pray that you would transform us, renew our minds, and make us more like you. Lord, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I want to end with. One of those is what we've already announced, and it has to do with connect groups. Uh, We encourage you, we would love for everybody in our congregation to be involved in a connect group. Some of you already are, and you're going to restart that connect group next week. Some of you are not in a connect group, and we want to strongly encourage you to come tonight at 5 o'clock. Everybody come if you want to, but especially those who are not in a group. And join one of our connect groups. We have several new groups that are starting. Connect groups are a great opportunity to lean in towards relationships and community, to get to know people better, and you kind of accomplish the opposite of suspicious minds. When you're in relationship with people and you're closely connected with them, you're not going to be suspicious about what they're thinking. You're going to want to love them even more. I also want you to be aware of our shepherds. I know I say this every week, but we have eight shepherds at this church. In just a moment, one of them is going to be up front with me, And the others are going to be around the room, maybe one or two in the back. And if you need to talk with one of our shepherds, if you need prayers, whatever you may need, find one of our shepherds this morning, or you can come up front. And the third thing I wanted you to be aware of is I realize there's probably some people thinking, well, if we're talking about the mind, he has no idea how jacked up my mind really is. Hey, we're all a little bit crazy. But the blood of Jesus can cover all of that. And if you haven't made a decision in your life to follow Jesus, to be baptized into Christ, I want you to really consider that today and moving forward. Because Jesus can change us. Jesus can offer us new life. Consider those things. Let's stand and continue our time of worship.